0: Welcome to episode 5 of On Translation with Mohammed Al-Bakri and Joseph McElhaney.
1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of On Translation. This is our fifth and last episode this year.
0: Yeah, we started back in August and have been just putting about one episode uh, a month. We think we're getting better at it, certainly on the the technical side. And I'm looking forward to uh, beginning the new year. I think you've got some interesting things lined up for us, Mohammed.
1: Yeah, I think we have a number of great topics and amazing guests lined up for 2019. Uh, We're going to start interviewing some working translators and scholars starting in January. Ah, an exciting new feature. Yes, it's something that we have planned from the beginning, but the time has come for including (laughs) it as well. Well, in this episode, we will talk about how translation is perceived and evaluated, especially in academia. Once upon a time, translation was one of the most lucrative and highly ranked jobs. That time happened during the Abbasid Caliphate under the rule of Harun al-Rashid and his son, al-Mamun. It was a great golden age for Islamic civilization as well as translation. As Dimitri Gutas points out in his magisterial work on the Greco-Arabic translation movement, translators were held in very high esteem, and they were given some of the best and highest position in the administration. In fact, the financial and institutional backing they received was so great, it became the stuff of legend. It is reported, for example, that the caliph, al-Ma'mun, used to give his chief translator the equivalent weight in gold to that of the books he had translated into Arabic from Greek, uh, Syriac, or Persian. It is also reported that the translators used to take advantage of that generosity by choosing the thickest of papers (laughs) and writing in big letters and leaving large margins between the lines.
0: Well, they had uh, they would only thought to translate onto uh, lead tablets, they could have performed a true alchemical transmutation. They were using papers at the time.
1: Anyway, what do you think of this story?
0: It, you know, sounds apocryphal, which usually just means uh, too good to be true, but... You know, clearly, uh, as you pointed out, it says something about the real value given to translators and the act of translation. I think in the ancient world in general, it was seen more akin to just literary practice. And I even think about uh, the Romans, and I may have mentioned this before, you know, their literature was born uh, in an act of translation. uh, Third century B.C. translation uh, of, of Homer's Odyssey and some of the earliest plays were translations adaptations transmutations of greek plays and it's it's funny to think about how translation today is valued uh, or not. Certainly I think most translators working today don't feel that they get paid uh, worth their weight in gold or their work certainly isn't.
1: That story about giving the weight in gold of books is definitely apocryphal. It's hard to believe. A practice like that would deplete the coffers of the state pretty quickly. Uh, (laughs) But yes, the point is that there was moral as well as financial support for translation. You know, before we start, I think of this episode as a compliment, our very first episode about the visibility of translations. Oh, yes. So they would make a good pair, I think. In that episode, we talked about a renaissance of translation studies and translation in general. Many books than ever are published in translation, and more and more institutions are introducing courses in translation and even degrees and programs in translation and interpretation studies.
0: Yeah, and and yet despite that, I, I wonder, Mohammed, if you think, despite that flowering, if... Translation itself is valued uh, in the same way.
1: I would argue it's not valued enough. Translators still struggle to get their work weighed equally with other forms of scholarly work. With very few exceptions, they still have a second-class status and suffer from a lack of institutional support.
0: Yeah, it seems to be the the case and and one wonders why that really is. Again, there seems to be uh, some history at least which regarded translation as just as valuable as any other type of intellectual labor or intellectual endeavor producing, I would say, still new forms of knowledge, though perhaps uh, uh administrators and academia and maybe even academics themselves don't seem to quite regard it that way. It's it's like a secondary type of intellectual labor.
1: It is definitely an intellectual labor. It requires a formidable set of skills,
0: a great analytic
1: as well as intuitive command of two linguistic systems and two cultural systems. It's a very critical act. It's an act of interpretation. It's the closest of close readings. And yet, and yet, it's not considered either creative or scholarly activity because of this emphasis on authorial originality. It's not considered original work. It's considered derivative.
0: Right, which earlier I, I had talked about this idea of thinking of translation as really the paradigm in authorship, what we call original authorship, is really a secondary or subspecies form of translation. And and there's a way one could think of even, say, writing a history textbook, writing a literary Critical interpretation is a kind of translation as well, right? Translating group of documents uh, into something meaningful. And there's a way, in fact, one could say that what we consider translation proper, mastering two linguistic systems, is way more difficult than some of what's considered original scholarship.
1: But there is still this emphasis on originality. I think what you are offering here is an alternative view, definitely a much more capacious conception of scholarship that has not taken hold in academia.
0: Uh, I think there seem to be some hints, right, that uh, academia, in terms of uh, evaluating translation for tenure promotion, is starting to take hold. We see hints of that. Um, And I think there was even... Almost 20 years ago, the the MLA put forward what you might call a, a position statement about translation as a form of scholarship that should be recognized.
1: It's good that you mentioned the position statement of the MLA. I think it's been a decade, not 20 years, maybe 2011 or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Math, math is not my strong point.
1: <laughs> well, uh, before uh, we get into that statement and I would like to analyze it, there is this quote about the double bind of the translator from Catherine Porter, that I would like to read. She describes uh, the dilemma of translation. If they hew closely to the source text and produce a seemingly transparent reproduction, their work is taken for granted, written off as mechanical derivative, something anyone could do. But if they become co-generators of the target language text, if they take liberties and allow their own interpretations to become perceptible in that text, their work is declared untrue to the original author's intent, condemned as unfaithful, dismissed as pastiche. Of course, this is a bipolar view, and she she challenges this view and, and offers a much more nuanced conception of what translators do on the spectrum of, you know, taking liberties and viewing closely. But she also brings up an interesting point about the difference between translating fiction and nonfiction, which is another dilemma for translators. She says that there is a belief among literary scholars that poetic and literary language is ultimately untranslatable. What you get from translating is almost always an inadequate replica of the original. So that's a dilemma of literary translators. Well, how about nonfiction translators? Well, there is this assumption that expository prose is pretty straightforward. So I think between these two statements, She describes very well the double bind of translators, the dilemma of translation.
0: Right, and I I think that actually, that double bind uh, she describes, gets to the heart of the issues of treating translation seriously, valuing translation within uh, academia, right? Because, one, it's either viewed if it's say done well in in terms of you know a, a literal viewpoint it's it's derivative right and so a tenure review committee would just say well that's you're not producing original scholarship but if a translator went to the other side and was as Porter said a a code generator you could see tenure and review committee saying this is poorly done you know this really isn't a translation and therefore doesn't count And so even she has this theoretical discussion of it. I think it has very real-world applications, and it points to a very real problem for a lot of people who do translation work in academia.
1: You mentioned uh, tenure and promotion. Many schools actually are starting to challenge that second-class status of translators in academia, and they are starting to write criteria informed by the MLA statement that you mentioned in order to raise the status of translation and evaluate it more as a creative and scholarly activity.
0: But what's interesting to me, and I think the MLA statement is thoughtful and well done, but it points to the problem that you see, I think, in some of these institutions which are making a good faith attempt to include translation uh, with other works of scholarship in terms of tenure and promotion is that they still seem uncomfortable with the idea of devaluing translation in and of itself, and that what they almost require is to say, well, you need to do a lot of work explaining what you did. You need to annotate, you need to show some evidence even of textual editing. And so that in trying to value translation, they seem to reveal that it's still not valued, uh, that you have to produce this other, what they would consider original scholarship around it, almost the paratext, we would say. And that's really what counts.
1: Yeah, but what is the alternative? Because it's really hard to evaluate translation. I think they put the onus on the translator first to contextualize their work and explain it to the committee. And in this way, it can be viewed as a scholarly act. It almost always is.
0: Yeah, but I, I think a person writing a monograph is never asked to explain what they were up to. So I, I think there's still this second-class status uh, of translation in academia?
1: Maybe to give a flavor of the statement to uh, our audience, I think the introduction is great. Translation has been an indispensable component of intellectual exchange and development throughout recorded history. And they talk about translation of work, of literature or scholarship. Any major cultural document can have a significant impact on the intellectual community. Uh, And yes, as you mentioned, they put the onus on on the translators to contextualize what they do to give examples of the challenges they have encountered. So, in other words, they want them to be critics and analysts of their
0: own translational work. But what's interesting also in that we might think about translation in terms of different disciplines and departments too. It's almost as if it's someone who works in translation but is not in a creative writing program is somehow caught in this this bind uh, that their work would be recognized at their same institution but simply in a different discipline. And I I can see that there's some argument for that. And yet translation presents a special case that still isn't addressed uh, very well. Even the the MLA statement I think near the end talks about, you know, there are no suitable metrics for evaluating a good translation. And of course we know that's true, but there's no it's it's a strange way to frame the problem because, you know, are there good metrics for evaluating uh academic monographs. Someone might point to number of citations, number of reviews, good reviews. But the same could the, be the
1: publishing press, yes. Yeah. Press.
0: Exactly. And this but the same those same criteria could apply to a translation on its own without all the paratext and justification.
1: Except I think I've mentioned that more than once, that this notion of authorial originality that is assumed for the monograph, but it's not for a translation. Translation is not an act of knowledge creation as a monograph is supposed to be. It's more like knowledge transmission. And herein, the difference.
0: I don't see that distinction between knowledge transmission and knowledge creation as, I guess, one is an important one and and maybe as a real one. And I would say, if you say what's called original research is knowledge creation, i I think translation has a strong case for knowledge creation, too. Or one, on the other way, one could say that academic monographs are primarily about knowledge transmission rather than creation. You know, the way this debate gets framed, it just goes back to that fundamental problem of translation versus authorship. And that category, that conceptual framework is what creates all these, to me, unnecessary problems.
1: Well, I think one thing that we cannot argue about is that the fact that you mentioned translation is very interdisciplinary. It's across different fields. It's, it's a defining condition of literary studies and classical studies as well. It's crucial to the development of these fields. We often study works of classical history and literature in translation without necessarily acknowledging the act of translation or delving into its problematic. But one thing that I like, they get into the notion of audience. Because that's really a very important component of evaluating translation. They say, and I quote here, One scholar has been invited to translate a collection of poems for a prestigious series highlighting the best new poets writing in Spanish. This scholar focuses on recreating the poetic effects of the source text, rhyme, assonance, meter, thereby sacrificing literal meaning, at least in part, as well as scrupulous adherence. the syntax of the source text. Another scholar, however, has been asked to use the same set of poems in a bilingual edition aimed primarily at people who read or are learning to read Spanish. This second translator chooses to adhere closely to the syntax of the source text and to highlight the referential content, sacrificing meter, rhyme, and other poetic devices. The two translations differ dramatically, yet each is entirely appropriate to its intended purpose and new context. So this is a new one's view that many tenure and promotion committees would not be aware of. And I think the MLA statement raises a point in order to make uh, make it clear that the intended audience is really part of the translation
0: act and should not be neglected. Uh, to me, it's it's still a problem because I would say you don't evaluate those two different cases as two different kinds of translation but really is simply two different kinds of scholarship. And in the second case, the scholar is really producing something akin to a textbook, uh, whereas the first scholar is really producing what most departments should consider an original piece of scholarship. And so if you evaluated those cases not as translations, but as textbook versus a monograph, then that problem goes away.
1: Yeah, I know. It's not a perfect statement, but at least it's a step forward trying to raise the status of translation and translators and put the spotlight on the kind of intellectual activities that goes into their work. The reality is, however, is that translation is not, still not considered either a creative act or a scholarly act. In fact, in some cases, it could actively work against you. There is this uh, famous case, I think, Professor Mark Mark Anderson, professor of Germanic studies at your alma mater, Columbia University. He was actually advised not to publish translations before getting tenure. And in fact, he didn't heed this advice. He still published, but under a pseudonym. And he was, uh, this is the interesting part in an interview with him. He was grateful for this advice. He thought it was a a good advice because having too many translations on your CV can sometimes hurt your academic status. I know this is funny and it's kind of amazing if you consider that for 3,000 years, translation has been at the heart of literary and scholarly exchange. Another famous case, I think, is Lawrence Venuti. I think at the beginning of his career, he was denied tenure because his corpus was consisting mainly of translation from Italian. Perhaps one reason why he
0: very critical of the invisibility of the translator. And for for good reason. I know of a, a couple of cases which maybe are more optimistic. A friend who's done a couple of Translations uh, major university press uh, was going up for promotion to full professor. And I think there was some question whether or not his translation work, uh, which was the majority of his scholarship since he had received tenure, and he had written a monograph for tenure. And I think, one, he had to fight, but fortunately, an external reviewer, an extremely prominent, perhaps the most prominent uh, scholar in his field, at an Ivy League institution, actually wrote that for his one translation, uh, this Ivy League institution would have granted him tenure. And my friend was not in an Ivy League institution. And so having a really major scholar speak up, even if it was only in a, a external review letter for the value of translation, and that my friend's institution accepted that argument, uh, shows that maybe maybe the tide is turning. And even if we don't always see it written in policies, there is there's hope that it will become part of more and more.
1: Yeah, I think the tide is, uh, is turning, but as always, uh, change is a slow process. But I would like to end actually with this statement from the position statement of MLA that shows the value of translation in, the, in its true light. The MLA statement regarding the work of translators might not be a perfect document, at least in your view. Maybe it's a little cautious, but I tell you what, it is definitely and undeniably a step in the right direction, and a welcome corrective for that. It places the act of translation in its larger context and frames it properly, and in so doing, it advocates very sensibly, in my view, for the academic value of translation. I would like to end our episode by quoting the definition of what translation entails and the kind of work that translators do. Translators are engaging in an exacting practice, at once critical and creative, that demands lexical precision, detailed knowledge of historical, political, social, and literary contexts, and a nuanced sense of style in both the source language and the target language. I think that's pretty a pretty good definition.
0: That is a really nice statement, and, and one that hopefully has been used and will be used more when uh, translators around the world start making case uh, for their work uh, as scholarship. Though, as is my want, I would turn it around and say scholars should try and make a case for their work as equivalent to a translation.
1: All right. On this note, we will wrap up our episode for uh, this year. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next year.
0: All right. See everyone next year. Take care, Mohammed. This has been On Translation. Visit us at ontranslation.org and follow the podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play.